Welcome to OTR Debate, our off-the-record podcast where three lawyers debate all things while managing to find out how it all comes back to the law. My name is Mucci. I work in immigration, and I'll be the judge for this face-off of a couple young adult novels and their adaptations. I'm here with Lando. Yeah, hi. I'm Lando. I'm a prosecutor. And we... I'm we. I do contracts. We're and just a couple of young adults. <laughs> yeah. well, and they're debatable. Yeah, pretty yeah, that's, young, that's I guess. debatable. <laughs> In the grand scheme of things, we are pretty young. Uh, today, we will be talking about uh, The Hunger Games and uh, Percy Jackson. So, what side do you guys have on this debate? I'm going to do Hunger Games. Okay. And I'm we, Percy yeah. Jackson. That leaves me with Percy Jackson. Yeah, that's true. He just gets leftovers. <laughs> <laughs> we, like, Lando just, Hunger Games, Hunger Games. <laughs> I was like, I guess we'll take Percy Jackson. I'll take it. <laughs> uh, is there anything we want to get out of the way, or do you just want to get into it? I, yeah, we can just get Let's into, get into it. it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, everybody, as always, the uh, format will be opening statements, uh, followed by my questions, and then a brief closing argument from each side, and then we'll be ending with a verdict. Um, and also today we'll be having a um, a guest as well, uh, a an expert witness upcoming, yes. uh, Daniel Orsino, an author um, that we'll we'll be talking to. Correct. I'm going to be calling her as a character witness. Yeah. All right. So um, yeah, who wants to begin with their opening? Um, I can go if you want. We sure. Um, I, I know I took Hunger Games right out the bat, so <laughs> I'm going to preface this with a full understanding that everyone. Um, knows the hunger Games series they were wildly popular uh the movies were you know they did wonderfully and everybody knows about them um but for the one or two people that don't know what this series is um it's a book series turned franchise movie franchise where 12 boys and 12 girls are chosen as tributes in a battle royale where only one of the children remains after essentially killing their whole competition all the other kids uh, the books and movies follow this 16-year-old uh, protagonist, Katniss Everdeen, as she volunteers as tribute um, to save her sister, who was actually chosen. Um, I think they pick out a bull or something, her name. Um, from then on, she becomes the face of a revolution where the districts, um, meaning like the neighborhoods and, and cities outside of the capital, are forced to compete in the these games this, these hunger games and they're sick of it so they want a revolution and she becomes their face um with over 100 million copies sold on the new york times bestseller list for over five years straight uh hunger games is a book series and movie franchise that delves into huge concepts in an easy um to grasp way for young adults uh, uh, as well as uh, full-grown adults and you know, middle-aged men uh, <laughs> to understand and enjoy. So, uh, with all that being said, I think Hunger Games <laughs> wins this one. Specifically, middle-aged men. <laughs> all right, we. What, what do you got here? Yeah. Um, so, similarly, for those who are uh, not familiar with um, the Percy Jackson series, um, basically, it's a series of, of books uh, where the main character Perseus or Percy Jackson um, is going through life um, as a 12, well, he starts life as a, tw <laughs> excuse me, he doesn't start life as a 12 year old, but he is 12 years old in the first book. He starts um, his life in the books as 12 years old. Sure. We meet yes. him as a 12 year old. Yeah. It's um, like a Benjamin Mutton guy. Right. <laughs> Percy Jackson is uh, 12 years old 
in the first book um and he's going through school um uh and he's not having like the best time but he learns um that he is actually the son of poseidon um he uh finds this out because of he starts seeing some visions um at school on a field trip and um basically leads him to start learning more about his dad because you know this whole time he's being um, raised by his mom and his stepfather um but we learn um as the readers that the big three um who are the sons of Kronos, so zeus poseidon and hades um they had a pact after world war ii um because in that universe um the children of the gods of the big three were getting too strong so they had a pact to not have any more children mm -hmm. um so his father poseidon abandons him um with his mom and she remarries um but the reason they had this pledge um, this pact together is because the god's children were getting too strong um and so um in that universe world war ii was a conflict between all of the uh, god's offspring um so you know on this field trip uh when percy's in sixth grade um he learns that he's at risk for murder um for being a demigod because um you know there's just they don't want demigods the children of of the gods to exist um so he gets sent to this uh camp half blood which is a training camp um on long island not to um, be confused with camp mudblood <laughs> yeah i don't think half blood here is derogatory in okay. this universe okay um uh so he meets some other i demigods. shouldn't have said it i shouldn't have said it i'm sorry uh we might have to bleep that one out <laughs> we're probably gonna get canceled for that <laughs> Um, but he meets other demigods and he gets sent on quests. And so the, the book series um, kind of goes, uh, follows him and his new friends um, along as they go through quests, um, trying to stay alive. Um, and uh, yeah, so um, there were originally five books in the series um, from 2005 to 2009, um, which were all critically acclaimed, award-winning books. Um, and then recently, uh, there was a sixth book that came out this year, and there's a seventh book slated to come out next year. Um, the first two books were adapted into films. Um, the first one was great, I think, uh, for the viewers. You know, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed both. Uh, the second one um, was less well-received, but... Uh, Which thanks. often happens. Yeah. It often happens when, you know, they have to live up to the first one and they didn't adapt after that um well thankfully for fans oh. of the series um they are rebooting or relaunching i guess the first book um will be season one of my understanding mm. of the new series that's coming out on disney plus um next month um well as of record yes as of record so december 2023 okay um so yeah i think you know i'm excited for it and you know obviously it's enough uh it's a po popular enough series that they're choosing to reboot it even after the not so successful second movie. Um, obviously, uh, it's a different cast because that was a while ago, and they're no longer children. The actors and actresses. Um, <laughs> Maybe so. they could play the uh, the parents now. Yeah, potentially. <laughs> Middle-aged men. <laughs> <laughs> so just because you mentioned the the new series that's coming out, uh, Hunger Games. Did they just, um, I think it just came out, right? The a prequel to the Hunger Games series that follows uh, a character from the initial Hunger Games movies. It just came out in movie theaters. It's, it's out right now. Probably yeah. still going to be out uh, in theaters when we release this. So, yeah. Just so 
judge you don't think that you know they're the only ones with anything new <laughs> the hunger games is just done and yeah, yeah. Um, they're no longer hungry <laughs> so you're talking about what's coming out in these series what's new but let's go back to the beginning what are the origins of these stories and where did the authors draw their inspiration from um so whoever wants to begin with that one yeah i can start um so the author of the percy jackson series is uh rick riordan um i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing that exactly correctly uh but there is since the creation of the riordan verse which i think is you know is now a thing um but that sounds made up <laughs> well it's all fiction everything. novels <laughs> um but uh so the author rick uh as you know he will since henceforth be known <laughs> uh was telling his son uh Haley, uh bedtime stories and at the time um of this his son was learning about greek mythology in second grade um and he asked his father uh to tell him some stories based on greek myths and so when rick ran out of myths um his son suggested that he just make up new stories based on those um and so he created the fictional character of uh, Percy Jackson and a story about him traveling across the United States um, to recover Zeus's lightning bolt. Um, and so he submitted this uh, manuscript to his um, agent and his editor and presented the book um, to a group of uh, six like middle schoolers, basically six, seventh, eighth graders and their teachers. Um, and he got all of their approval um, They you know, they were really interested in the, in the, the manuscript. Um, so he, um, along with their help, came up with the book's title and um, the way that the main character Percy's sword works. Um, and so in 2004, the book was ultimately sold um, for a enough money that Rick uh, could quit his job and focus on writing full-time. Good and, for you, Rick. Yeah. Um, so after it was published in 2005, uh, it sold more than 1.2 million copies. And, um, you know, that's where it got its start and, and continued along from there as a series. Well, I do like um, where that he figured out how the sword works i like the that you establish rules you know for these kind of fantastical worlds i right. think that's kind of an interesting thing Mucci always the rule follower yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well rules are made to be broken but yeah. i like the rules are Mucci the bad boy <laughs> so right. in, ter ahead. in terms of hunger games um in an interview with time magazine suzanne collins describes how she initially started thinking of the hunger Games series the hunger game book um, in that she was channel surfing, she was catching those waves, and she was watching these reality shows or, or saw these reality shows on, on TV. But then when she was flipping through, she saw images of the Iraq war. Um, and prior to that, she had been kind of dabbling and, and interested in the uh, just war theory, some, you know, some philosophy for you since i know we haven't done one of those episodes in a while um but uh essentially the just war theory t comes from um basically thinking of the morality of waging war right so it comes uh originates from catholic moral um theologians like augustine of hippopotamus whatever his name was uh <laughs> thomas aquinas um <laughs> Um, and it was divided into three categories. So before war, during war, and post-war. Mm -hmm. um, and in the um, deciding of whether to go to war, the theory talks about different aspects of, is it a just cause? Are there right intentions for going to war? Um, is it being brought out by a legitimate authority? Uh, is it the last resort? And then finally, 
um, is it proportional to what's being brought out? So are you reacting in a proportional way? Um, during war, obviously, um, there's the um, they had topics of uh, discrimination. You're you're not supposed to target certain individuals. Um, you're only supposed to target legitimate threats, legitimate enemies. No medics, no civilians, if they can be avoided at all costs. Um, just enemy combatants. Uh, proportionality again. No unethical means. You can't. You know that during world wars, um, you know it's it was established that all sorts of gas. You're not really supposed to be using that stuff. Um, following orders is no excuse in, in war to justify, you know, doing these hor- horrible, horrible things. Um, and then post-war, um, going back to the status quo, trying to get to peace after war, not this hostility still, um, punishment for war crimes, compensation for the victims. So these are all things that... Um, I'm not sure how far in depth she was looking at these, but the just war theory was on her mind um, when developing the the concept of Hunger Games, as well as Greek mythology and the Roman gladiators, spectators watching, you know, these people duking it out, killing each other. And in terms of Greek mythology, because I know that's that's um, that is Percy Jackson. um, As far as Hunger Games, there's the story, the story of Theseus, a young prince. uh, in Athens, where he is, it's essentially Hunger Games. He is chosen in a lottery f- of seven boys, seven girls, to get thrown into this uh, maze, this labyrinth, where there's a Minotaur. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with a Minotaur. Maybe the Percy Jackson right. guy over here is, but um, it's a half man, half bull. So for listeners, viewers, you. This might sound familiar because our co-host Moochie is also, uh, he sometimes goes by the name of Minotaur. So, <laughs> Which has the bull. <laughs> there so, is a Minotaur in Percy Jackson yeah. uh, in The Lightning Thief, the first book, by the way. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So that I, I figured, you know, any of the Greek mythology stuff was probably going to tie into something in Percy Jackson. But these are all things that, you know, kind of brought about the Hunger Games. Well, it was interesting that, yeah, I didn't know the Hunger Games also had a connection to greek mythology um you didn't yeah. no <laughs> it wasn't overly <laughs> obvious to me either yeah okay well, well, yeah, no, is really a greek name <laughs> didn't come across <laughs> uh but i mean you know obviously inspired by something and you bring it to different you know places but right. um yeah so i mean we kind of touched upon this a little bit already but what are some of the major real world themes that your series does explore i mean you talk about the just world theory but um aside from that or in addition to that is there anything that we also be <clears throat> particularly like inspirational or meaningful for its target audience of young adults um yeah young people yeah reading I, and watching I, this well just to tie back into what i was talking about um when developing the story of hunger games and, and really the trilogy um and and talking about war when you when you discuss concepts like war with young adults um, it's kind of, it, it's a big concept. And when you get in just war theory, it's a big concept for young adults. But she also tackles uh, concepts like oppression, because there's a revolution that happens throughout Hunger Games. Talks about starvation and other effects of war. Um, there is a scene in the movie and a um, couple of lines in the book what, that has the main protagonist, Katniss, is starving, literally starving, and she's thrown a piece of bread by... Um, 
Peter Malark, who is one of the love interests. Is it Peter Bread? <laughs> exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> Peter's Bread. Peter's Bread, yeah. Um, so, you know, tackling concepts of starvation in a children's book, it's kind of it's kind of wild. Um, and uh, really, you know, this whole, the whole story is about a revolution and how the capital is oppressing all these people and they're all starving, they're all oppressed um, and the way that it kind of unfolds with this main protagonist as the center of it all. Yeah, I think um, for Percy Jackson, um, you know, there's not quite... Uh, the same themes of starvation and poverty and everything like that. Because they're, they're gods and they're well off. Well, they're demigods for yeah, the most part. There true. are gods in there, but, um, you know, I, I think it explores more to uh, the readers, uh, allows the readers to explore more about identity and belonging. Um, you know, Percy Jackson, as his 12-year-old, he uh, suffers in school from, like, ADHD and dyslexia, um, and he doesn't quite fit in because um, he's moving schools all the time, so he has a hard time making friends. Um, and he just, he wants to do well in school, but he's kind of a troubled kid, gets sent to the office a lot in detention and things like that. Um, and uh, it just, I think that's something that a lot of young kids can kind of um, relate to. Um you know, wanting to do well and make their parents proud and things like that, but just like external factors or, or internal factors as well that might be stopping that. Um, but as the book progresses and the story continues, um, Percy Jackson, you know, once he once he learns that he's a demigod, um, he kind of starts to better understand himself. And so, actually, it's common um, in the book in the universe that the demigods, all of the children um, of these gods. Um, all struggle kind of with learning disabilities because their brains are hardwired um, for ancient Greek. So like learning in English is a struggle for them. Um, but, you know, a lot of this, the new friends that he makes at the camp, uh, Camp Half-Flood, um, you know, they all know or they knew um, that they were demigods, whereas Percy Jackson's mom kind of hid it from him. Um, mm -hmm. So he was just kind of going through life not knowing. Um, and, you know, it's, it's at Calf, uh, Camp Half-Blood where he starts feeling more like belonging um, and that there are people like him as well. Um, I think one of the, one of the big points in the first book um, is that he has a really strong relationship with his mother, um, but he really doesn't like his stepfather. Um, and, and that's something that many children uh, kind of experience too. Um, you know, his stepfather is a really mean guy, sometimes abuses his mom um, and his, uh, did they have that in the movie? Uh, I don't think as much. Um, they do. Uh, I, I, they do introduce him as a character, um, and the whole reason for him uh, being there really um, is he's like a really smelly guy. Um, <laughs> Gross. But the reason his mom marries him is because his stench is so overwhelming; it blocks Percy's scent as a demigod, so that the other gods can't come find him and kill him. Oh, because he's not supposed to exist. It's because disgusting. Of the gods. But, basically but yeah so she's putting up with it to protect him um and knew that you know being having this smelly guy around will help protect him so um you know i kind of as they um go through the plot of the first book um with his mom being kidnapped and everything and um really navigating like his relationship with his mom and the absence of his father because he didn't know who his dad was poseidon he learns that later in the book um but he, he learns um, that a lot of the demigods at the Camp Half-Blood are kind of in similar situations. Just the nature of them all being half-god, half-human 
you know, their godparent, not godparent, but <laughs> the parent who is a god. Uh, <laughs> we got it. <laughs> godly parent. Yes, godly parent. Um, uh, by virtue, they just um, were either raised by single parents or had, um, you know, parents who remarried. And oftentimes they were someone that they um, kind of did out of necessity for protection, similar to, to, to um, Percy's story. Um so, you know, he's just meeting so many new people and, and kind of gets that sense of belonging and purpose and um, when he's sent on all these quests. So I think it's it allows the readers, especially young readers and, and maybe middle-aged ones as well who are struggling with identity or, or purpose in life, um, it, it gives them some direction and, and they can see themselves in the characters. Okay. Okay, before we uh, go any further, I just want to remind everybody to do us a quick favor, subscribe um, to this podcast, subscribe on YouTube and on any podcast app you're listening to this on, and also follow us on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, whatever you're on, just find us and also give us a good review. We'd love that. Yeah, yeah. we love you. <laughs> we do love you. Cancel, um, so you had your uh, expert witness you wanted to introduce? Yes. At this time, I would like to introduce a character witness, um, Danielle M. Orsino. She is an award-winning fantasy novelist whose lifelong vision to create whimsical realms that her readers can escape to. Um, her book, Locked Out of Heaven, was recently named 2023 the uh, New York City's Big Book Award Distinguished Favorite uh, in Visionary Fiction. Mm -hmm. So at this time, I'd like to get her on board and uh have her as my character witness all right Danielle? Uh, <laughs> kind of a strange <laughs> way to end that council but <laughs> yeah well i'll accept it you know you got to lay some you know foundation for yeah. our for our witness here danielle how are you do i have to get sworn in or anything i don't know like do i lay my hand on you know like sarah you're sworn. moss's court of throw you know <laughs> Put a thrown in glass or something just to get you know, the official. I don't know. I think it's stipulated that you're going to tell us the truth. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. You're sworn. All set then. So um, my first question to you and really the, the main reason why I'm calling you as my witness here is I want to talk about the importance of a female protagonist in either sci-fi, fantasy uh, books that's your realm. That's your strong suit. Um, tell us about, you know, the the importance of these characters, and uh, especially in these kind of books, because I know that's not always it's not always a common thing, specifically in these types of genres. Mm -hmm. If you want to just talk to it a little bit. No, it's not always common. It has become more common in fantasy, as we've seen uh, the genre explode, especially in the last couple of years. When you look at Hunger Games, for example, especially in YA, because that's also the market. You know, I mentioned Sarah J. Moss. Uh, you look at Shadow and Bone. You know, these are the female leads are the main thing. They're usually the chosen one. You have the usual tropes. The chosen one, you know, the prophecy, uh, the reluctant hero or heroine. Right. These are the chicks that are ch kind of driving the story. Uh, what we have seen more of, which maybe I'm not a fan of, is it also has become more romantic driven. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you need them. You know, right. they have to be there. They're the ones who are going to save the world, even if they don't know they're going to save the world. And then we go, you know, we kind of have the whole Buffy Summers thing going as well. <laughs> Getting into it. Uh, so they're, they're necessary. It's also a matter of what, who the audience can relate to. 
mm-hmm. you kind of want to see that arc of I'm nobody. I'm just, you know, somebody who's just trying to get through the world. And then boom, you're the chosen one. You're the one who's going to save us all. And everybody wants to think guy, girl, doesn't matter that there's something in them that is special mm-hmm. that nobody else sees, but that one person can kind of pull it out of them and they can dig down into that strength. And I think as a female, it plays into the idea that you're stronger than you know. Right. And that kind of goes even to Wonder Woman. Yeah. The, the first Wonder Woman, we're going to pretend Wonder Woman 84 did not exist. <laughs> we're going to go back to the first one. We're gonna, that one didn't happen. Uh, but that idea that you're even the most rarest of the rare. And so I think that's a big point to the female protagonist. Uh, you look at Ripley, you know, there she is with a group of guys, but she's the one who can defeat the alien, who's also a female. You know, it kind of goes yeah. with that idea of mm-hmm. you're the one that can do it, and it's only you, and it can only be a female. You look at uh, Princess Leia. Mm-hmm. You know, here she is with all these guys. But she's the one that can, like, fix this whole rescue mission that's gone completely off course. Yeah. Just not going to happen. But then she's like, oh, forget it. You call this a rescue mission. I'll figure it all out. So it's just, you kind of always need that female to either get the whole thing back on course or totally take it off course and then redirect it. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. like I said, be the chosen one. It's it's just that usual trope that's always necessary. Right. And I feel like with uh, young adult books, I think, mm-hmm. um, be it a female protagonist or, or a young male protagonist, I think that's important for young readers, right? Like they, to, to, Maybe for them to see someone that maybe wasn't the chosen one, was this normal person, and then all of a sudden something is found within them, you know, something that they can kind of latch on to that, you know, my abilities, what I am is also special, could be special. And, you know, very important for young girls to read that and see some, see themselves in it, but also for uh, boys to read that and... Uh, take a different perspective than they would have uh, otherwise had you know you know i've always read that leading uh, reading i I should say leads to more um empathy Uh, and when you can read a female protagonist as a young boy it's going to give you empathy for women that you might not have you know had as you're a developing person so i think think that's that's hugely important that's excellent points on both sides uh yes younger girls need to be able to relate and see that they can be more uh, boys need the same thing to see that girls are more, mm-hmm. but then it also goes to boys need to see it. When you think about the allure of Peter Parker, yeah. that was the whole thing. I mean, Stanley kind of did it because he wanted to see that and he wanted to see a relatable character, you know, and he drew it in himself. But there's also this idea that as much as it's written for the young adult crowd, the adult crowd likes to go backwards and kind of relive that whole youth thing yeah. and yeah. think, if I had that chance, mm-hmm. I would have been picked. I totally would have, like, that's how I would have done it. I would have been picked out of the crowd. I would have totally been like, yeah, me as tribute. <laughs> totally would have stood up for my sister. Yeah, that that would have happened. If I had it to do all over again, it's kind of that attitude a little bit, too. Mm-hmm. So there's a general universal appeal that I think speaks volumes. I wanted to jump in here uh, because I did notice that you um – one of your bios mentioned as one of your muses at Chris Claremont. 
who uh, wrote, you know, a ton of female characters in the X when when he took over X Men yes. in the well, late seventies mm-hmm. and throughout the eighties. Mm-hmm. Then you got Storm, you got Kitty Pride, Rogue, uh, all these, you know, incredible, strong, and and multifaceted, sometimes villainous, mm-hmm. sometimes you know, good or antiheroes or whatever uh, female characters. And uh, I wanted to kind of talk about how that uh, inspired you, but also. You know, obviously, this is a man writing these in like the 70s. So there's like some dated, I'm sure, characterization or situations they get involved in. Um, do you feel, though, that there was a lot that still holds up and that uh, still inspired you, you know, in your writing and everything? Uh, I will say Chris Claremont is, to me, still the godfather of the accident. Like, you know, if yeah. Stanley created you know, we call him the father, then I would say Chris Claremont is the godfather because he formed and polished everything that we know. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think he's just amazing and wonderful as a writer. Uh, Some of it 100% still holds up. You know, could I look at it and be like, okay, does Jean Grey have to do that? You know, does she have to be mooning (laughs) over? You know, but in the end, uh, most of it, holds up i think the biggest thing i learned from him and i've actually told him this we've had a couple conversations about this is he made villains he made me empathetic to villains Mm -hmm. which at that point i had not been the dark phoenix saga changed Mm -hmm. so much for me because all of a sudden i cared about the dark phoenix up to that i could you know magneto was magneto you know before we changed we retconned everything up to that point, I was just like, okay, that's the brotherhood of, you know, evil. Like, who cares? You know, mm-hmm. Mystique was Mystique. But after the Dark Phoenix saga, yeah, I was like, here's this entity with Jean Grey and then trying to separate the two and understand, mm-hmm. you know, the Dark Phoenix is just looking to feel and sensations and trying to understand this whole human experience and whether you agree it's wiping out a whole star system and whatnot. <laughs> but it was like this weird kind of I have to understand, and then Jean is being corrupted by it, but at the same time, you understood how much she held back as being Marvel Girl mm-hmm. and being Jean Grey and kind of being second banana to Scott. Mm-hmm. And then you're kind of like getting the idea of how these two came together. I remember that was like a whole thing. And as a writer, I'm like, it's not an anti hero thing, but it's like, oh, villains are not just good, bad. Yeah. Right. Was it, it? And that was. Big. There's a little bit of gray. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've, gray. That's a whole other. Thing. <laughs> we've we've talked about her I think in a couple uh, times. A couple different times. We we actually uh, we had an episode where we talked about. Um, well, we were uh, at C two E two. C two E two. We um, talked about a book where she was on trial, like a galactic trial or yeah, something for and, mm-hmm. her crimes. Which like it was a different version of Jean Grey. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you uh, remember the all-new X-Men. This was like yeah. maybe 10 years ago. Yes. Um, but she was like the 60s version of Jean Grey brought to the present of that time. And she didn't. She wasn't the version of Jean Grey that went on to, you know, do these destructive yep. killings and everything. Uh, but yet, you know, this galactic court um, still holds her accountable, uh, which is like a really interesting, um, you know, Completely she not just at all. Yeah, it kind of seems unjust. Yeah, uh, but yeah. So, oh, sorry. And C two E two is. Um, do you know it? It's, yes. Okay. It's a convention yeah. here in Chicago. Yeah, I didn't know if it was a 
uh, widely known. Oh, but, yeah, yeah, I'm a con girl. <laughs> okay, got it. <laughs> I think speaking to that, um, I know that you do some uh, cosplay and, and a lot of combat. What I a just... transition. <laughs> Look at that. Um, that was nicely done. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, you know, both the, the Hunger Games and Percy Jackson have their... Um, adaptations from the novels into movies and Percy Jackson is, is getting um, you know an adaptation soon on Disney Plus yeah. coming out next month um, uh, and uh, I was just kind of wondering you know with your combat background um, are you usually like satisfied with novels that you've read and seeing them translate onto screen since you have all that knowledge of how martial arts works and things like that or um, you know and how does that affect your writing as well uh, when I've seen I thought the Hunger Games from that book to screen adaptation had probably done the better job of, of you know kind of combat i'm mm. always probably a little too critical of sure. stuff when it comes to that i'm you know i'm a little critical of that uh especially the superhero movies and things mm-hmm. i will give lord of the rings a little mm. more of a pass mm. because mm. to do a to translate a sweeping battle from a literary standpoint to screen is difficult. I don't even write like big sweeping battles because it's just too hard. It's like, I don't ride horses, so I'm not going to tell you what it's like to hold a sword and a shield on a horse and be like battling 5,000 orcs. Uh I have no idea. I can't even like possibly try to comprehend that. So I give Lord of the Rings a huge pass and go, good job, Peter Jackson. Like nicely done. (laughs) No idea. Orlando Bloom, you want to like go and do great. I don't even know. So I just go, good job guys. And just kind of push that off to the side and Mm. say, well done. I don't even know. But like, you know, shooting a bow just at somebody standing there and there's just people. Okay. Like I can critique that a little bit more. (laughs) So it's a little different on that. Um, Marvel movies and things like that, I'm really critical on. DC movies, really critical on. Uh, the last really good one, I know this is controversial, so, like, everybody, you know, <laughs> I, I didn't love it. The Flash, I didn't love the movie. Right, but right. Michael Keaton's Batman scenes, some of the best Batman fight scenes that have been to date. That, Interesting. That was the oh. only thing that I was excited about for that in that movie. I still haven't seen it, he, but I, I could imagine he's his, probably the only good thing about it. <laughs> His fight scenes were so well done yeah. because they were actually, it wasn't a cape and a cowl and a fist. It was long body. They were realistic it, for his age, for everything. It was like, I just sat there and I went, all right, I'm good. Like they were very well done. Yeah. Mm. So well done on that. Um, but as for me as a writer and as a martial artist, whenever I write a fight scene, it's usually no more than four people in the fight mm-hmm. because more than that, as a reader, I think you get lost you're kind of like, okay, wait a minute, mm-hmm. what's what's happening? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also tape all my fight scenes. I set my phone up on a tripod, I go outside, and I do the fight scene from different angles. So I know what I'm writing is, so the reader can figure out, are you reading this from the attacker's point of view or from the person who's being attacked? And I would think just to, and, just to see if it even makes sense, right? I mean... Right. Yeah, because, you know, I have to, I try to keep it simple. Mm-hmm. It's really, you know, elbows, knees, uh, the kicks are very simple. I'm not sitting here throwing scorpion kicks and crazy stuff <laughs> where somebody's like, how does that even work? You know, Spinning like, bird kick? <laughs> yeah. We're, we're not doing, you know, there's no tornado kicks. <laughs> there's, you know, there's nothing like this going on um, because I want the reader to feel like they're fully immersed. Yeah. They're right there and they're like, oh, I could see what's happening. There's been plenty of times my husband's walked into the backyard 
and my dogs are up on their hind legs and I'm like, stay right there. <laughs> don't move. And he's going, I don't even want to know. And he just backs out slowly. Yeah. And he's like, just, just don't hurt anybody. And I've got a sword in one hand and I'm like, okay, guys, ready, go. And he's just like, as long as I don't hear a bark, we're good. <laughs> and we've done stuff like that. But everything gets videotaped and then I watch it and I'm like, this makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Back out and do it again. Mm-hmm. And we keep going until I get something on film that I'm like, now I can write that. Cool. And go. And I have to think about if I'm attacking somebody, how's their body reacting? Right. If I elbow you in the face, you're probably going to go back. You're not falling into me. Yeah. You're going to go back. How far back are you going to go? If it's a fae, I have to think about their strength. If, it's an, if they're hitting another fae, can they stand it? Um, are they in armor? Are they in boots? What's the terrain? So I go through mm. all of that and then figure out how's this fight scene going to end? And we, we work backwards. And then, you know, I see what it looks like. And then even then, as I'm sitting there, I'll get up from the computer and go, no, 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 and rework it out. Mm-hmm. And mm. whatever happens, happens. Yeah, that's a really cool process. Yeah, that's really, I never heard of that before. That's really interesting. Are there themes to your books, certain things that you always kind of have constants um, kind of getting to like, you know, your universe, all the rules within the universe, the, the type of weapons, everything has to make sense. Um, you know, if you want to talk about the female protagonist and how they interact in your books, um, that might be different um, from maybe other books where, you know, they're, they're a female protagonist, but, you know, kind of still a trope. Um, in my books, my females get along. That might be different. Um, my chicks get along. Uh, you know, they are not fighting over men. Okay. There's none of that. They don't have time to swipe right or left. They're not looking for love in the first couple books. Uh They're, you know, they just got locked out of their home. They're stuck on earth. They are trying to figure out their own identities. They're not like, I'm going to go find a guy. I'm going to go find a girl. Like none of them have time for that. They're just Uh kind of like we can't go home like we're stuck here it's not time for an orgy like they don't you know (laughs) this is not it they're trying to figure out their lives uh they're also not bound by gender so you know if they fall in love they say we fall in love with the energy not the package they really don't care if it's male female that's not and they they don't even define themselves by male female they kind of think it's funny when the humans do it they're like oh and when they get married, they're like, so you need a contract to stay together and not cheat? <laughs> like, you know, they kind of think that's all funny. They're like, right. you need a written contract. And they look at them like, okay, like you just, your word doesn't count. <laughs> they're kind of, they, the Faye laugh at that stuff. They're like, okay, that's, that's cute. That's part of it. Um, so that, that's an issue. They're, I have the light Faye who are based more on elemental magic, but it's based on their chakras. That's kind of part of it. They're also they're they're kind of like you either have air uh air earth you know that kind of thing but then it's bound to uh animals so it's like if you're guardian of the butterflies then secondary is air Mm. so it's kind of that way it's like you can be uh, a primary elemental maybe water or you can be a secondary to an animal Mm. and it works Mm. that way to where the dark fey uh they're warrior angels. So they do, they have plasma balls and they're celestial blades. So they have a totally different set mm-hmm. and uh, they're not gifted in magic per se, but they have a, an alliance with dragons. 
So I have uh, three types of dragons. I have um, acid, fire, and ice breathers. And they're kind of with the dark fae for different reasons. And the females on the dark fae side, they're all warriors. Mm -hmm. So they've kind of lived that whole life to whereas the light fae, they're a little more, uh, I wouldn't say soft. They just have a different perspective. You know, they kind of live in the court. Mm-hmm. So they, they look at things a little differently, mm-hmm. um, but they're about their friendships. That's really cool. So if our listeners or viewers want to, you know, get more into your series, Locked Out of Heaven, um, how can they do that? Uh, right now you can get it on audio. Uh, that's mm-hmm. how it's available. It's on, you know, Audible and stuff like that. And then I'm re, uh, re-editing the whole book, the whole, all six books to put it in one volume. So okay. you will have all of volume one since volume one is complete, including the novella which was fire, ice, and acid. That is my dragon tournament because people were asking for a dragon-centric story. Mm. And so I did do uh, a dragon-centric story Mm. where it's told from the point of view of a dark fae and her dragon who are trying to get into uh, the elite fighting force. So that I'm adding into volume one. And then that whole book will be put together before volume two comes out. Mm. So everybody will kind of be able to get it. So right now you can jump into Locked Out of Heaven on audio just to kind of get a taste and get ready. And then I'll be putting all of it together in one uh, limited edition volume and, uh, you know, probably put some, some cosplay pictures in there, you know, just to kind of get everybody set Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, check it out. But if they want to, if you're in the, uh, I think it's Ohio. Yes. Columbus, Ohio area, December 1st through the 3rd, I will be at GalaxyCon selling all of the books there. I will have all the hard covers and softbacks. You can come see me there at the pop-up bookshop, and then I will be traveling with the GalaxyCon circuit uh, for all of 2024, and I will have the books there if you just want to come and check it out. And you can always buy them there, too, from me. Yeah. Great. And awesome. uh, if you want to just tell us about your socials, I know you're you're on Instagram, and you've, you've got socials that they could access all that stuff as well, right? Yes. You can always follow me on Instagram at birthofthefay underscore novel, and uh, check it out there. And then, um, you know, just you can get all the info really from Instagram. That's where I'm, I'm most active. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I'm going to put the books up on the website, I will let everybody know that's where the announcement will be and where you can find them. And then, uh, you know, I'll be selling what I have left over of my cosplay covers mm-hmm. of the books will go up on my website, but I'll make the announcement on Instagram. And that's where I'll make all the announcements about volume one and everything else that's going on. And when volume two will be ready. Awesome. Great. Awesome. Thanks so much, Danielle. Yeah, thank, thank you so you. much. So a great discussion. Thank you guys and, so uh, much. Thanks for being his expert. Yeah. Uh, I think you're going to help I hope out. I did you proud. <laughs> you you did so. me proud, and I think I'm going to win this one for you. <laughs> I, I Go team. I don't know what else I'll do for you, but like, I'll send you good vibes. You know, go team. I'll, I'll get pom-poms out, whatever you need. And uh, you know, maybe I'll see you guys at the cons. Yeah. I know that we're up for a panel on C2E2 next year. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, we, yeah. yeah, we do a big who would win where we have everybody come up and debate just, you know, their favorite characters okay cool and, you know yeah. who did it better and things like that so maybe yeah. i'll see you guys there yeah oh yeah we'll yeah we have to look into that because i think we do want to go next year for sure yeah for sure yeah i will definitely let you know but you know if you're in the galaxy con areas stop by and see us because we're always doing panels and things there as well and at the pop-up bookshop sweet right. yeah thank you thanks well, thanks again okay so now that we've heard from your experts um a lot of great information um why don't we just go into closings and um this is where you can bring in uh, the law. So just uh, tell me something about how your story connects to the law and your closing here. Sure. Um, so Hunger Games tackles 
of you know themes of justice and an injustice um, when it comes to the law surrounding war, right? So going back to the um, just war theory, uh, just post-bellum, post-war, what should happen after war. Uh, the Hunger Games trilogy ends with the war being over, uh, districts prevailing. Um, this isn't a spoiler because it's been out for a while now. Um, so taking into account the just war theory, um, they should really get back to the status quo of things, right? Like, that's what should happen. Districts win. Um, they should befriend the capital and everybody should kind of have peace, right? After war crimes are prosecuted and after victims are compensated. Well, they do talk about, the books do talk about uh, President Snow, who was the, the president at the time when the, the capital was ruling the districts. He's held for essentially an executioner. Uh, execution, sorry, mm-hmm. um, where Katniss is going to be the executioner um, for his countless war crimes throughout the the wars. She, is she the judge and jury as well? She, well, I think she, I think he was judged and oh, okay. before that, but she, she's, uh, she's got her little bow and everything, and she's set her to, little bow. <laughs> <laughs> she's set to, uh, she's set to execute him in front of everybody, pretty much, um, for his war crimes during the war and and before. Um, but the new um, president, President Coyne, has been seemingly starting to essentially kind of just mirror what President Snow was doing um, in enacting essentially another Hunger Games, but only this time it's, it's with the, the capital's children. So just an inverse of everything. Um, so she takes it upon herself to just kill President Coyne instead. Um, essentially becoming an assassin um she becomes a traitor to that newly formed government uh the in power government with no revolution there so uh by the end of things i don't know how she wasn't tried for her crimes um you know she probably should have faced consequences and that's my that's my whole two cents of the legal side of things in Hunger Games. <laughs> yeah so in percy jackson uh and the lightning thief the first book um Percy is accused by Zeus of stealing his uh, master bolt, which is called, uh, you know, his lightning. What is that? <laughs> it's, uh, it's a powerful weapon um, okay. in that universe. Um, and so in order to clear his name, Percy goes on this quest to try and find, you know, the lightning bolt and, and find out who actually stole it. Because obviously Percy uh, didn't do it. Um, <clears throat> so he sets out to retrieve the lightning bolt from Hades, who he suspects um, stole um, the lightning bolt because um, Hades did send that minotaur uh, that was previously mentioned um, to attack him and his mother and, and steals his mother's soul. Half um, man, half bull. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they go down to, to Hades um, and confront him, but he actually reveals that um, his uh, helmet of darkness, which is a symbol of his power, was also stolen. So he's proving himself innocent that he didn't really do it. Um, you know, some other stuff happens yada 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 (laughs) and um uh they find out that uh luke who is the son of hermes um who was at camp half-blood um was actually the real thief Mm -hmm. um and um the reason he stole it um was to allow Kronos, who is the father of zeus and poseidon and um to give him more time to rise again because Kronos was defeated uh so because luke is kind of pissed off at all the gods you know he's the son of hermes and and just kind of the same situation that percy was going through with like his upbringing and everything but obviously different children go through the world differently and have different life experiences um 
So uh, Ares, the Greek god of war, had been manipulated by Kronos to help cover up Luke's crime um, in order to instigate the war between the Olympians. Um, and so uh, with that tying into the law of the crime of theft and, you know, obviously a lot of murders and things like that that happen, <laughs> um, tying into the real world, not our real world, but the real world of the universe, like the human world, um, I just wanted to mention that they're probably not going to get in trouble really for anything because there's a thing called the mist in the universe, um, which is a supernatural force um, that twists the mortal sight. So if we were existed in that universe as mortals, we wouldn't be able to see like all of the monsters and the gods and the titans and things like that because the mist replaces all of those things that are going on with um, things that the mortal mind can kind of comprehend. Mm. Um, there are also uh, some other things that... Um, do happen that I think aren't really explained in the book uh, in terms of like how they're getting away with it. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, I mentioned uh, Percy's stepfather, um, the, the guy smell. who, yeah, the smelly guy who was abusing the mom and everything. So in, in one earlier battle, Percy defeats Medusa and cuts her head off. Um, he set, uh, eventually gets the head back to his mother and she uses it to turn um, her hus husband, soon to be ex-husband, uh, and his his friends into stone and sells the statues, you mm. know, uh, to make money, and she is able to escape. Do they the still marriage. smell. What do the friends do to her? I don't know if that's his uh, friends. It, that that's uh, you know uh, further character development with the mom. Of, she does kind of have some um, oh. you anger know, issues. Yeah, uh, <laughs> maybe rightfully so because she was abused and stuff and put, went yeah. through a lot. But uh, you know, she did take it out on on the friends, which you know if. Not really self-defense, I guess, in that case. Uh, but, you know, that's the legal side of things. Yeah. Well, Percy Jackson, that poor boy. Um, Such uh, a poor boy. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, so I, I'm i very inspired by um, the, the witness we had today um, in um, her goal to draw these um, or to write these really well-drawn and uh, really complex female characters and I think uh, in, in, in young adult fiction and I think uh, here we have a great one in Katniss so uh, I'm going to give this one to Hunger Games to Lando. I was really nervous that you were going to go completely the other way. <laughs> so no. <laughs> Big swerve. We, we've seen that before. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I maybe did a disservice by not bringing up Annabelle who is Percy's best friend uh, mm. but just to say that Percy Jackson also has strong female characters. She's the daughter oh. of Athena. Side characters. Um, not to change your ruling or anything, but just so that people know, there are also um, very interesting and mm -hmm. well-developed character, female characters in the Percy Jackson universe, or the Riordanverse as well. <laughs> well, how interesting and how you know strong are those characters? Because do they have conversations with each other? Are they in the scene by themselves? Are the conversations about something other than a man? There you go. Well, we don't know. But we'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> thanks for watching OTR Debate. See you next time. Thanks. Bye.